stand out to us, but one that often does is that you know the depths of our sin and yet your love for us in Christ is permanent. It is unchangeable. Because your love is not based on our performance. It is based on the finished work of your dear son, of your beloved one, who died and rose again for us. Your love for us is securely grounded in him and through him extends to us with all of its permanence and wonder and amazement. And yet, Lord, we sin and we know the sin that is in us. And so we pray that you would unfold for us the depth of your love to us, that you would teach us, as Paul prayed even for the Ephesians, not that we might grow comfortable with sin, but that in understanding your love and your grace, we might hate sin all the more and turn from it and seek to live for you and, in, and live in light of the life to which we have been saved and in which we share and which we will know forever with you in your presence. And Lord, as we look now at the book of Ecclesiastes, the first chapter, we are confronted with a life or what life would be like, or what life is, apart from you. It is an endless, an endless cycle of nothingness. But with you, it has meaning and purpose. Help us to learn from the wisdom of Solomon. Teach us, Holy Spirit, for while he is called the preacher, Koaleth, or the teacher sometimes, Ultimately, you are our teacher. You unfold for us truths. You give us understanding inside. You unfold to us the glory of revelation. And so to that end, we ask you to do that and meet with us here. And we pray these things in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen. So open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We introduced this book last week, and uh, this morning we'll look at the introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes uh, together. And as you well know, anybody who has any familiarity with the book of Ecclesiastes, the key theme there is vanity. And anybody who's lived in this world and is halfway paying attention knows that life on its own terms is just that. It is vain. It is vain. It is futile. It is something in which it can never promise it can never actually deliver on what it promises, and it can never truly satisfy the heart of man. And this is what we are confronted with in the book of Ecclesiastes, not in a hopeless way, but in a realistic way, in an honest way. We, some of you have seen, I've actually not seen it, but I've seen it commented on, so I know the general idea of the book, uh, uh, the movie Groundhog Day, and apparently the character in Groundhog Day, if some of you have seen that, uh, he is uh, cursed, essentially, to wake up and repeat the same day over and over and over and over. And I guess there's a variety of things that he does as he realizes uh, that this is his lot. Uh, and he, so he begins to try to find pleasure in a variety of things. And eventually, as the conclusion of the movie goes, he finds love and that breaks the spell or however that works out. Y'all who've seen it know the plot better than I do. But in either case, that, that is a picture and part of what Solomon is going to draw us into this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That 
that cycle that this character lived in of repeating the same thing day after day, of going through the monotony and the drudgery of the same activity, the same people in the same places doing the same things every day can fill one with a sense of restlessness, a sense of questioning what is the purpose of it all. And that is essentially the question that the book of Ecclesiastes seeks to answer for us and provide one answer for us. And the main theme then of Ecclesiastes is life is vain without an obedient love for God, without an obedient love for God. And it's said that way on purpose, not just a love for God, but an obedient love for God, a love for God that lives under not only his authority, but under his gracious commands, lives a life for him. Now, we're going to look at this briefly under four main headings, and I'll read them to you, and they'll uh, appear up on the uh, board as well. Um, we have our faithful Noel back there who's going to try to, <laughs> uh, to, try to, to keep up, and I'll do my best to make it clear. But here are the four points. One, the evaluation of life without obedient love for God. Second, and that's in verses 2, verse 2. Uh, verse 3, question of purpose regarding life without obedient love for God. And again, these will be up there. And number 3, the answer of reflection on life without obedient of love for God. In other words, after reflecting on life, apart from this kind of obedient love for God, uh, he provides an answer to his question. An answer essentially that justifies his initial evaluation. And number 4, Lastly, hope and meaning of life with God. So that's the general simple outline that we'll use. Evaluation of life, a question of purpose regarding life, an answer of reflection on life, and then the hope of me and meaning of life with God. Let's begin by opening, uh, reading the first 11 verses, and then we'll look at these points. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem... Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains the same. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular course, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing that which has been that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come still later. Sort of a striking and an interesting opening to a book of Scripture. On the face of it, it seems to fly against everything that the rest of, even in the Old Covenant revelation, tells us about the goodness of God and the promises of God and the hope of God. 
he opens the book with a poem that sets the theme for the rest, identifies the questions that perplex him by acknowledging that life goes on in an endless and ceaseless and seemingly purposeless repetition and monotony of which man is in the middle and merely lives out his days with nothing beyond what he experiences here to give him any sense of significance. And that's how he opens his book. Let's consider precisely, though, what he's confronting us with and where he points us to. Let's begin in verse 1. Well, if we look first at evaluation of life without obedient love for God. He begins his book with an evaluation of life without obedient love for God. But first he introduces himself. Look at verse 1. And this I'll just mention briefly. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We've already we noted last week that the author of Ecclesiastes is best understood to be Solomon. That's traditionally how it was understood. Contemporary scholarship has a Solomon-like writer or has many writers redacting it over times or has it as collected wisdom and so forth. But we'll understand the most natural reading of these words is that the author of this book is Solomon, the son of David, who was king in Jerusalem and one of the greatest kings in Jerusalem that has ever reigned. It's a natural understanding of these words. The book fits perfectly his life. It matches the character of his life as one who was full of wisdom and took delight in observing and taking note of creation and what could be learned from it and writing it down to give wives saying to the people of God. Just on that note, let me mention to you one passage. In 1 Kings 4, don't turn there. It says of this in verse 29, Now God gave Solomon wisdom. You remember God gave Solomon a wish, not like Aladdin, you know, with the genie, but he appeared to him. The girls watched that last night. Uh, and, but rather he appeared to him knowing that he was going to be the one to ascend to the throne following his father David. And he asked him this question, uh, what he could have anything that he wanted. He used to ask it from him. And Solomon asked for wisdom, and God gave it to him, along with many other things, because it was a wise request. And it says now in verse 29, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrite, Hermon the Calcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahol. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and of birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon was a wise man. He was a wise man who had been given wisdom from God. Unlike any else, anybody else during his time and whoever would come after him. And he was a man who was given every advantage in life. And he made use of every advantage that he had in life. He used it all the way to its fullest extent. And he also made many mistakes along the way. And so when we come into the book of Ecclesiastes, he brings us essentially to the fruit 
of his learning, the fruit of one who has learned by experience, the fruit of one who has learned by experience, who is also very wise, to teach us what it means to live in this world and to, be a, and to teach us with an honest look at it. He the, has the wisdom of one who gained it as one who knew great blessing and who knew great failure. He took from life all this world has to offer. And we're going to look at his life a bit more closely next week. Here I just mentioned it as the introduction. But he brings us immediately as one who is wise, one who was given wisdom, one who had every advantage in this world to an evaluation of what he sees as the ultimate struggle, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate dilemma that we face as men. He says it in verse 2, vanity of vanities. These are the first words of the preacher. Says the preacher, vanities of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is vanity. This is essentially a statement of evaluation. It's a value statement. It is looking at all that he's observed and coming to occlusion and putting a value on it. And that value he states as being vain as being vain, when the whole scope of man's life, man's work is held up to the, to the idea of ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose, the conclusion in the final word is all is vanity. Now, some of you may have a different translation. Vanity is the one that's the most common, and it goes all the way back into the patristics. It is the most common, and it does well to capture the idea of the Hebrew word here, which is a term of much discussion, habel. What, is, what does he actually mean by the use of this term? The term itself actually just means vapor. It has the idea of, of vapor. It describes the, so what is immaterial and transient. But most, and it's translated sometimes that way, it's translated as breath or vapor uh, in the Old Testament. But in Ecclesiastes, as in many other places, but primarily in Ecclesiastes, it is translated metaphorically. It's translated metaphorically. He doesn't use a literal use of it as vapor, but he takes the idea of what is transient like vapor and he applies it with, the, and he imbues it with a sense of meaning saying, like a vapor, that's what the meaning of life, taken on its own terms, is, comes to when it's evaluated. Life is temporary and therefore has ultimately no significance on its own. So that's the ultimate idea of vanity. And that's why it fits as a, as a good general word for a translation of this uh, term. It has this idea, if purpose and meaning are looked for only in what can be obtained or observed in this world, then life is futile, it is vain. Now, part of the reason that there's so much discussion about what, how to translate this term is because like any term, when it's used in a different context, it takes on a different nuance. And let me just illustrate this for you briefly. If we use the word heavy, we can use, let me say heavy has the idea of something that's dense, it has a weight to it if you pick up uh, in a gym, one of the big plates, it's a heavy plate. Heavy can have the idea of something that's important and weighty in that sense, like, whoa, man, that's heavy, you know, a deep truth. It can have the idea of sadness or burdensome, like, I have a heavy burden. And we could go on and on and on. 
Each of those has thy sense of weighty, of taking great effort to lift or to bear, but the context de de determines its specific nuance. And so it is with this term, habel, here translated vanity, but we'll look at the way that he swirls this word around, which he uses over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes to bring out all of the significance and the nuance and the ideas that are behind it. But that being said, it is the opening word of the preacher, and it is, in a very general sense, a summary of his evaluation of all of life under the sun. And it is an intensive way to say this. He doesn't just say life is vain. He says vanity of vanities. And that's, that's a way in the Hebrew language to bring emphasis. We, we might uh, associate this with something more common to us, the holy of holies. It's like the most holy place. You have the holy place walking into the temple, the front room, and then you have the holy of holies or the most holy place, emphasizing that that is a really holy place and only some are allowed to go in there sometimes during the year, the high priest uh, once a year. And so it here is a vanity of vanities. It's a way to bring out emphasis and say, says that vanity is a complete evaluation. It is the sum total of all of life on its own. And this isn't uh, uncommon for those who are thinking individuals to come to this conclusion on their own. While this is maybe a little darker than how many would state it. Uh, some of you have heard of the atheist Bertrand Russell. I think probably he was a well-known atheist. He made this statement in his autobiography. He says, we stand on the shore of an ocean crying into the night and the emptiness. It's up there. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it is a voice of one drowning. And in a moment, the silence returns. The world seems to me quite dreadful. The unhappiness of most people is very great, and I often wonder how they endure it. To know people well is to know their tragedy. It is usually the central thing about which their lives are built, and I suppose if they did not live most of the time in the things of the moment, they would not be able to go on. It's kind of bleak, isn't it? It's kind of bleak. And if one wants to live life in a way that Solomon is here warning us at the beginning to live life without reference to God, that's really the only ultimate conclusion that one can come to. Even though man fancies himself to be wise, Paul addresses this in Romans, that man has rejected the worship of the one true God whose glory is revealed in creation to become wise in their own eyes. And yet, with all of their wisdom, it amounts to nothing but vanity, and their life amounts to nothing but vanity. And if one were to truly consider by observation what life is on its own terms and take it to its logical conclusion, we would agree with the preacher here that it is vain, it is empty, it is temporary. Put another way, and particularly from a covenant perspective, from Solomon's perspective as one under the covenant of God, 
the greatest command given is what? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It sums up the essence then of what God has designed in us as his image bearers to find meaning and purpose. It is to love God with a whole soul, whole mind, and whole strength. Anything outside of that is outside of his will and ultimately going against our very created purpose and therefore will lead us only to emptiness and meaninglessness. This is the idea of verse 2. That is his evaluation of life. Look at verse 3 and note, secondly, a question. A question that he asks, which will be essentially a thematic question throughout the book, again, to be looked at in different ways. A question of which the evaluation of vanity is the answer, but here is the question behind that. How does he reach that conclusion? By asking himself this, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? What advantage does man have in all of his work which he does under the sun? What ultimately does it produce? What ultimately does it produce? That's the question. That's the question he asked himself. And again, that's the question that, that man has a tendency to want an answer for. And to ask ourselves, again, when we're thinking and not just flitting from one pleasure to the next, to the next, to the next. What is the meaning of it all? Many come to faith in Christ and come to a true knowledge of God because the Spirit of God impresses this upon them. What is the meaning of it all? Why am I here? Many of what times the Spirit has used that to draw someone to repentance and faith in Christ. Trish was that way. Many others were, in some measure myself. Many of you can identify with that. Because it strikes to the core of our identity, our, our sense of meaning in this vast universe. What is the point of it all? Here he phrases it in this way. What is the advantage? In other words, what is the profit is another way to put it. It's a commercial term. Does man have in all of his work? And work here is not merely sometimes what we might think of only as employment. I go to work. I get a paycheck. That kind of thing. Work is a, is a much broader concept here, and it has this general idea. What advantage does man have in all of his effort to do something and to produce something in this world? That's a general idea of work. It's what we exert ourselves for, to bring something about, to produce something, to supply something, to provide something, to create something. Whatever the purpose behind that might be. And he says, in all of that, what advantage do we actually have under the sun? And that's another key phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's used like 27 times or so in the book, under the sun. And, and again, that's as as, uh, understood in a variety of ways. But the essential idea is this. It, it limits the question to man's activity from an earthly perspective is a good way to think of it. From an earthly perspective. Not from a divine perspective. What is under heaven, sometimes writers will, will say. In other words, that, that brings more the sense of the idea under the watchful eye of the creator and covenant God. But here is under the sun, which merely is looking at life from an earthly perspective. And he says, what advantage does man have in all his work? 
Now, this is not to say that work is not important. As a matter of fact, work is essential to who we are as human beings made in the image of God. Work is not a bad thing. Work is a good thing. Work is, work is a part of our essential being as humanity. I mean, God created us to work. He's not saying work is bad. God cr- created us to do what? To subdue the earth, bring it into subjection, to multiply and fill the earth, to rule over the earth, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. He created us to work and to till creation, Genesis 2. He put Adam in a garden. He told him to work in the garden. There were things for him to do. God works. He ended his works of creation, of course, after the sixth day, but he continues to work in fulfilling his redemptive plan and upholding the universe. Jesus said, my father works until now, and I am working. God is constantly active, producing something, working toward something. Man is created to work. I think many of us know the drudgery of what it's like to be out of work. What do we tend to do? We tend to get restless, don't we? I remember uh, I worked in the studios for years in California, and when I started out, you'd jump from show to show to show. So you'd like have a job, and you'd work on something, and then it would be over after a certain amount of time, and you'd kind of waited for the next job, and you just kind of networked and that kind of thing. Uh, but I can remember I, you'd work, and you know, you'd put in a lot of hours, and then I'd be in between uh, shows, and the first like few days is great. It's like, oh, this is great. You, know, you sleep in, you eat a lazy breakfast, you figure out what you're going to do for the day. It's pretty cool. Uh, like many of you may have felt that at the beginning of coronavirus. I know some did, actually. <laughs> some heads are nodding. But then after about a week or so, you just start you know, getting like this. You just start getting a little bit restless. Like, I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to do something. You can only watch so many TV shows and check the mail so many times during the day and so on. That's, that's because God designed us that way. We all know if we have a job when you have lag times, that's one of the worst times is when you show up to work and you don't have anything to do and you have to fill up eight hours with busy work or busy activity. It drives us nuts. It drives us insane. Why? Because God didn't design us to, be, to lack productivity. It's not how we're designed. God isn't like that. We made in his image are not like that. We were created to work. So when he asks this question, what advantage does man have in all his work? It's not disparaging work. That's, a, that's essential to who we are as humanity. He's not disparaging the idea that we even now can still find some kind of satisfaction in work. As a matter of fact, he's going to say in chapter 2, verse 24, that's a certain advantage that we have. It's a blessing from God. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. So he's not saying there isn't a sense of fulfillment in the work and the things God gives us to do. He's not saying work itself is somehow pointless and of no advantage. That is, that's essential to who we are. But he's asking a question, what ultimate advantage does it bring to humanity from an earthly perspective. Yes, it might bring personal fulfillment. Yes, it might bring certain fruits that are good for men. But what is its ultimate meaning? What does man ultimately produce in his work under the sun? He's really looking at this under the conditions of the fall. And actually, it's interesting. We, uh, the word that's translated here, work, is a unique word There are other terms that can be translated work. This one is one of the least common. 
But it has consistently in it the idea of toil. Not, not merely work as in doing something, but work with the idea of toil and struggle. One standard resource says this about it. It's employed often with the nuance of drudgery of toil rather than the nobility of labor. So what advantage does man have in all of his work? His work which is laborious, his work which can have a sense of drudgery, his work that can have a sense of monotony. Why is it like that? Well, again, I mentioned this, you know it, because this good thing of work that God created is now lived out and exercised under the conditions of the fall and under the curse. Remember, when, when, when man fell, as, as you remember this, but, and when he cursed Adam, he didn't curse him with work. He didn't say, Adam, now all your servants are going to go away and you have to work in the fields yourself. He didn't say, Adam, now I'm going to stop bringing to you by supernatural power all of your meals at the front of your doorstep and blow a cool breeze on you for the days of your life. Now you have to work for it. He didn't say that. What he said was this, your work, which would have been joyful, your work, which was full of fulfillment, which had a sense of flourishing to it, which had a sense of significance and satisfaction, is now going to be done with struggle. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you till the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and you shall return to dust. But here's the tension we feel in that curse. God created us to work, to be productive, to do things, to fulfill his mandate. And the fall did not eliminate that purpose. It's a part of being made in the image of God. It's a part of reflecting his image in this world. We can't escape that desire within us, stronger in some and than others, but it is an innate part of who we are. The fall did not eliminate this desire for purpose, this desire to work and have our lives count for something. What it eliminated was the reality of it actually counting for something. It subjected all of our work to drudgery and to futility. And again, most people have this, this need to sense some kind of purpose for their life, some kind of purpose for their life, that their life matters, that you're needed, that there's some point to your existence greater than waking up with your alarm clock, eating breakfast and drinking coffee, going to work, doing your job, coming home with your family, spending time with them, going to bed to get up and do it all over again. That's what you do on Monday. What do you do on Tuesday? You get up, you eat breakfast, you go to your job, you finish your day's work, you come home, you eat, you spend time with whatever if you don't have a family, friends. You go to bed, and then what do you do on Wednesday? You set your alarm, you get up, <laughs> and you do it. And that's the life. And that's, that's kind of the idea here. And sometimes when people will stop, and have you ever felt this where you say, what's the point of it all? What's the point of it all? Why do I do this? Why do I do this? What advantage is it? What does it actually produce? What ultimate value does my life have? What difference would it make if I were here or not here? Right? People ask those. 
Now, again, there are certainly good things that man does, works of art, architecture, mastery of the earth's resources for human flourishing, the care and well-being of fellow man, and, and other things, work that's done with great effort at great cost. Again, the question is not a denial of that. It is simply asking, what is its ultimate value? What is its ultimate value? How does what I do answer my deepest need for significance and purpose? That's the idea. That's the idea. And of course, Solomon's going to unfold for that in his own life as we continue to walk through Ecclesiastes. But let us get to the third part here. And it's this. Uh, What is his answer? So his evaluation is that everything is vain when life is seen merely from an earthly perspective. The question that drives this conclusion is why, what advantage does man have in all the things that he does and accomplishes? And the implied answer is nothing, and that's why it's vain. And now he reflects on that answer, and he reflects on how he reaches that conclusion in verses 4, really all the way down to verse 11. But we'll look at verses, well, verses 4 through 11. And he breaks it up in essentially two different ways. He looks at a way that that he arrives at this answer from creation and then from human history or human experience. So he asks the question, what advantage does man have under the sun? And he supplies his first answer, which is an answer of reflection, by looking at the earth and man's position on it. He says, verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And here he's emphasizing the transitory nature of man. And it's even brought out more by this double use of that term there for generation. A generation goes and a generation comes, and that's the endless kind of cycle. Men come, men rise, men fall, nations rise, nations fall, families rise, families fall. They come, they live, they die, and they move on. It's a striking picture of a, of a kind of futility. And it's even more striking in this sense. Look what he says. A generation comes and a generation, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The earth remains forever or stands forever. And this is really striking. And the idea of forever here has the sense of as, as far as the mind of man can conceive. It's going to go on and it's going to go on. But what makes this striking? What makes this striking is the creation mandate. Man was created to live on the earth rule over the earth, subdue the earth, bring out flourishing and meaning and significance for humankind on the earth as life is lived in relationship to God. But here, because of the entrance of sin, this this striking reversal has taken place. Creation is the one that has this enduring reality, and man lives on it and goes, lives on it and goes. And you can see, if you're looking at it from the a wide eternal perspective. Here's the earth. It continues to spin. It continues to do what it does. Man comes, goes, comes, goes, comes, goes. Man who is supposed to rule over earth, man who is supposed to be the epitome or is the epitome of God's creation is in one sense even less than creation for the significance of their lives will be gone in just a few years and yet long after they're gone and forgotten, the earth still remains. That's his idea. That's the idea. An old early church father named Jerome captured the point well. He said this. 
He said, what is more vain than this vanity, that the earth, which was made for humans, stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust? What's more vain than that? No invention or accomplishment of man, even during his short days, one noted, enables man to break out of nature and the succession of history into meaning. In other words, you can't, he can't exact meaning out of it. He's, he's just subjected to this reality. And so it has the idea of the transitory nature of men. And even though here he places it in a negative context... There is a sense in which by understanding this, we actually gain wisdom in another way, in a more positive way. Solomon's going to get there. He's not there yet. But listen to what David says in Psalm 34. He says in Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 39. He says this, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days like hand breasts and my lifetime is nothing. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. He uses our same word there. How about? So David realized that too. And he says, instead of fighting against it, actually help me to realize it so that I can present to you a heart of wisdom. Help me to know how transient I am. Help me to know that my life is but a vapor. And that's, that's the same idea of the writer of James as well. In James chapter 4, he says this. Don't turn there. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live also and do this or that. So here's the, here's the idea. His first, his first answer or his first illustration, or maybe piece of evidence, you could say, for why he arrives at the answer that everything is vain, everything is vanity, is because he looks at the history of man, and he says, look, the earth continues to spin. He's going to say more about that in a minute. The earth remains, and what is man? He comes, and he goes, he comes, and he goes. He's transient. Guess what? Nobody's going to remember your name in 100 years if we're here. You're going to come on the scene and you're going to go off the scene. We are just not of ourselves looked at merely from our role as humanity on the earth significant at all, at all. People die all the time in insignificance. And that's what he says. That's why it's vain. And then he gives an illustration of the sun. He says in verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets, hastening to its place, and it rises there again. And again, this is kind of a contrast to the way that sometimes this language is used in other places. You might be thinking of Psalm 19, where he talks about the sun being like a bridegroom that comes out of his uh, chambers, and it's like the circuit is from one end of the earth to the other, and it's this glorious picture of the majesty of God revealed in the rotation of the sun, how from our perspective it rises and it sets that we know the earth is the one spinning, but he's speaking from the perspective of man. And it's this glorious picture. But here, that's not how Solomon is using it. When he says the sun rises and the sun sets, hastening to its place, it rises again, he's actually pulling out the monotony of it all. 
He rises up, gets to the end, and then it does it again. Rises up, gets to the end, and then does it again. Rises up, gets to the end, and then does it again. And again, the language is important here. The word here for hastening actually has the idea of panting, of exhaustion, of being tired. One says the sun toils across the sky only to reach its destination and achieve no rest, no closure, but needing to rush back and do the whole meaningless task over again. Again, the idea is repetitiveness, a task that is never, never finished. In fact, it conjures up the imagery of an old uh, Greek god. I think there's a picture. Uh, okay, there he is. There's a, there's a man, and so this Greek god, his name is Sisyphus. I think that's how you pronounce it, Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus, yeah. And Sisyphus is someone who was a king in Corinth, and he was sort of vain and, and greedy and proud and those things, and he was punished by Zeus. And his punishment by Zeus was this. See that soon? He had to push this big boulder up a hill, and as soon as he reached the top of the hill, guess what happened? <laughs> right, it rolled back down to the bottom of the hill, and guess what he had to do? He had to take this boulder and he had to push it back up the hill, push it back up the hill. And then when it got to the top of the hill, guess what happened? It rolled back down to the bottom. What did he do? He pushed the boulder up the hill, up the hill. This is what he was to do for eternity. This is what he, this was his punishment. It was a, a constant life of just drudgery and work with no real advantage to it. And that's kind of the idea, the language he uses here of the sun. He's saying it works, it makes its way around. Uh, or the earth rotating, of course, but from our vantage point, the sun, it goes, it, it, it does its thing, and then what? It does it again. It does its thing, it does it again. It's an exhausting, burdensome kind of activity. And then he looks at the wind, and he says, look, in verse 6, the wind is blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. The idea here is that the wind blows, it goes here, it goes there, and it goes in this pattern, and it just continues to repeat itself. Verse 7, all the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. What advantage does any of this have? And here he might even have in mind, and very likely, the Dead Sea. Interestingly, the Dead Sea, if you remember, is at the lowest place, the lowest body of water. Uh, and it's very salty. You, you don't want to get a cup and take a sip. And it's there in the Middle East, and, and the Jordan River actually flows into the Dead Sea. And interestingly, there's no outlet. It just flows into, it doesn't like flow in one end, and then some of it flows out the other. It just continues to flow into the Dead Sea. It's been doing that for millennia. And guess what? The Dead Sea's still there. It doesn't get full. That's the idea. It's like if you keep filling up your pool and you kept the water hose on and it just never gets full. It just keeps right where it is. It never fills up. Not many of us have pools, but if you did, you get the idea. And the picture here is that's what it's like. And so the picture is, is not looking at the glory of how God uses that in the flow and the movement of creation, but he's looking at it in the sense of the judgery, saying, what, what advantage does it have? The river flows in, more water comes in, and you would think the ocean would continue to rise, but it doesn't. It just sits there. It stays like it was. If you go to the Jordan in... And if you were to go to the Jordan in, in the year 1900 and then visit in the year 2020, guess what? It's still going to be there. The Jordan's still flowing into it. 
the Dead Sea is going to still be the Dead Sea sitting in its spot. What advantage does it have? What does it actually produce? How does it, how does it create or do anything? And then he comes to a second area of evaluation, human history and experience. But he begins in verse 8 with another statement of evaluation. So what are we to gain from all of this from creation, from all of these examples? What do we do to gain from the idea that generations rise and fall and yet the earth remains? What are we to do with the circular nature of the wind that just goes around, the sun that repeats this repetitive force, water that flows into the sea and yet never fills the sea? What are we to make of that? He says, verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man, he's essentially, that's kind of how it is with man is what he's saying. That's kind of how it is with us. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Again, it's kind of a, kind of a, a sense of futility. All things are wearisome. Why? Because here... Not only is man's work never produce any real profit, he's going to again come to that at the end, but it has a wearisome nature to it. Again, a sense of being mundane and monotonous. He's carrying forward again this evaluation it's of vanity, of emptiness. Why? Because everything that we do and everything that we experience and everything that we could gain in this world is never satisfying. To quote you too, the still haven't found what I'm looking for. The soul just is like that. It looks, it searches, it tries to satisfy, and it never actually can be satisfied. One put it in this way, we cannot say enough words to find meaning in the midst of this monotony. The eye will never be able to see it all. There are always more sights to see, experiences to take in, pictures to look at. For some, there is always one more pornographic image to try to find pleasure in because the experience does not last. And the ear is never heard at all. There is always more gossip to spread, songs to hear, ones to listen to, flirtatious words to enjoy. Nothing we can say, see, or hear can bring meaning to this redundancy. In other words, the idea is there's an insatiableness to our soul. And, and I think you would agree to say that this is heightened. This is, of course, a condition of man throughout the history of man, but this is heightened in a unique way in our present day and age, particularly with our unlimited access to the Internet and to entertainment. It's the never-ending ability to see one more thing, to experience one more thing, to shop for one more thing, to hear one more thing. And that's not by accident, by the way, you're well aware of this, but these companies spend billions of dollars to develop their programs and their sites just for the sole purpose of keeping you on their site. The single most addictive thing, both for our soul and to what he's talking about here, and even physiologically of this idea of the one more thing or, or is that of the internet, that there's always one more? How many times have you went to look for one thing and you ended up staying there for 10 times longer than you planned on? Why? Because there was one more. There was one more thumbnail. There was one more image. There was one more thing. One more, one more, one more, one more. And at the end of the day, when we sometimes people can look at their week and you say, how many times have you spent looking for one more and never engaged in the world around you? 
soul was consumed and withered. And so we know that by in a unique way, just because of our, the impact that the internet has had on our lives. And in it, I would venture to say, out of all of the good that, can, that does come out of it, it is also a tool universally to feed and enslave our desires. And no generation has ever known that quite so universally as we do. But he does know it here. And he says, look, man is not able to tell it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. If it would, we would have one thing and then we'd stop. We'd be done. But we're not. We have something. We're satisfied for the moment. And then we want it again. And then we want it again. And so that's the idea here. It's how sin works. It's how desire works when not captured and committed to the obedient love for God. When it's not captured with obedient love for God, that's how sin works in us. One notes we keep waiting for change in circumstances that will make us happy, and honestly, we live our entire lives like that sometimes. You know, this is what he's saying here is behind a midlife crisis. Many of you are too young to have had a midlife crisis. Some are not. And it is that phase in life where you expected to have accomplished more. Usually it's around your 40s, a little later. You expected to be a little bit further along, a little bit more secure, a little bit more educated, whatever, whatever. And there you are, and you evaluate your life. And all of a sudden, that sort of, that sort of uh, effervescent hopefulness of youth that always has the future in front of it, that always has a sense of newness and discovery, well, after a while, you've had the newness and discovery and you end up with life and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And that's about the time that most sometimes for men end up trying to satisfy that in sinful ways. Women can do the same thing. It's the idea not only behind a midlife crisis, but it's the kind of restlessness and boredom really that mankind in general feels and often tries to alleviate it in some sinful way. Go out and get drunk on the weekend. Sober up. Go to work on Monday. Work. Talk about the good times you're going to have when you can go to the bars and get drunk again on the weekend. And then you do it again and again and again. And you look for that relief or some other sinful kind of activity. And that's, that's really what fuels a lot of the sinful activity that we see. It is the sense of restlessness and boredom, the sense of searching for some kind of relief some kind of meaning, something that will bring pleasure. And yet it never does. It never does. And that's what he's saying here. All things are wearisome. The eye is not satisfied. The ear is not satisfied. And he brings to a conclusion. He says, is there anything, and this is really kind of looking at the history of man, is there anything which, of which one might say, see this, it is new already. It has existed long, ages for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will, be, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come still later. And this is, this is emphasizing the fact that with all of our effort, man can't bring anything new into the world. What does he mean by that? Men write new books. Men make new discoveries. Men build new buildings and cities. Nations are formed New laws are created. New technologies come into existence throughout the history of man. What does he mean that there is nothing new under the sun? 
Man brings all kinds of things that are new. That's a part of our human experience. It's a part of man's created purpose to subdue the earth. But that's not the idea that he's speaking of here. That's not what he's talking about. That's obvious. He's going to actually talk about his own life, how he created and did lots of new things. He's not talking about stuff like that. He's He's not talking about things. He's not talking about some knowledge just at its base level of intellect. That's not what he means. The idea is this, is that with all of those creations and with all of those new things that man brings into existence, with all of the new toys, with all of the new things that man makes, guess what? Man is still basically the same. And man still faces the same basic challenges. Man still faces the same basic reality of sin. One put it this way, human beings of today are the same sinful beings of the past, and thus they are no new developments or progress in the human race. With all of our iPhones and technology and rockets and all of that stuff, we are as morally bankrupt now as ever. Wars still happen. Marriages still fail. Sin still abounds. Crime still happens. Violence still happens. Unrest still happens. Nations still rise and nations still fall. They might do it with more toys and more stuff, but they still rise and they still fall. Nothing is new under the sun. We can think of this. We're looking at church history in our next men's meeting. And we can, one of the things there, one of the advantages of studying church history is this, is that you realize there's nothing new under the sun. The false teaching that we see today was the false teaching that Paul was dealing with, that the early church was dealing with, and so on. It takes on new forms, but the same thing, it's the same basic meaning. That's what he means here. There's really no progress, not really, not really. Man is still man. Man is still fallen man doing fallen man things, just doing it with, with neater toys. There's still oppression. There's still war. There's still catastrophe. There's still political systems. There's still all of these things. The heart of man hasn't changed. One put it this way. Technological advances do not discount Solomon's contention. Yes, we put man on the moon, but there was nothing for him to do there except stare at the earth. (laughs) I like that statement. You know, he lands on the moon, and you can imagine he walks off and goes, you know, now what do I do? Anybody bring a game? But you get the idea. The fundamental events of life remain the same, birth, marriage, family, work, and death. With all the new things that man accomplishes, there are still the same basic problems that confront us, the same basic realities of life, the same basic patterns of sin that are always a threat to an individual and to the world. Now, before we get to this last point that I'll mention quickly, do you ever feel like that? Have you ever felt that way? Especially when you're in times of struggle? I mean, do you ever just feel like, what is the point of all of this? What, what is it? I mean, I go to work, I come home, and you know what? My situation isn't really better now than it was a decade ago. Oh, I may live in a different place, may have more children, they grow, we have those experiences, but it's all just kind of the same. It's all kind of the same. Have any of you ever had, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody ever had a midlife crisis, some of us who are older? You ever had that period in your life where you just went, this stinks. I thought I'd be farther along than this. I thought I'd, I thought I'd be more mature than this. 
I thought I'd be further along in life. I'm going to say most everybody in this room that's over 40 and 50 has had that period in your life at some point, a period of discouragement, a period of, a period of uh, even maybe a kind of anxiety or depression. So what is the answer to all of that? Where does he leave us? Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't leave us anywhere. At verse 11, he leaves us right there. And he's going to tease out his answer through the whole book that we'll look at as he kind of takes that and he looks at it from a lot of different angles. But he leaves us there. It's not how he's going to end the book. It's not, going to, it's not where he leaves us throughout. He's going to say, you look at the end, fear God, keep his commandments because this applies to every person and God will bring every act into judgment. So there is a future, is the idea. But here he doesn't leave us there. And we need to feel the tension of this so we can feel and understand and embrace the glory of what God has done. So we can, we can feel the sense of what John the Apostle said in 1 John 11. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world, for the world is what? Passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. This world is passing away. Essentially, John is reflecting what Paul, uh, uh, Solomon is saying here. It's passing away. There's nothing. Don't love the things of it. Of course, there he's talking about the sinful things of this world, which is a little slightly different direction than where Solomon's going. But don't, don't look for your pleasure here. Don't look to be satisfied here is the idea. Don't be entrapped by these false glittering pleasures that are passing away and will lead to the ruin of your soul. It's transient. You're transient. Everything's transient. What isn't transient is the word of God. All flesh is like grass. The grass, it flourishes, it goes up, it has a glory, but then it withers and it fades away, but the word of God abides forever. But even more, we see this idea, and which is almost certainly in the background of Paul's mind, Solomon's letter here. Remember, Paul was a Jew who knew the Old Testament. And he actually uses the same language here the Apostle Paul does when he essentially brings us to the same conclusion and yet with a greater sense of hope. And this is it. How then do we find hope and meaning in life with God? Well, again, the ultimate answer for Solomon is to fear him and know that in the end, justice will be served and it's better to be wise. That's, that's it. And take, take joy in the good things that God does give us here. But the ultimate answer hinted at in the prophets in the Old Testament when they looked forward to a new heavens and a new earth, when they looked forward to the time when the land would be renewed and no longer would it be subject to vanity, but Christ would reign over his people as Messiah. The Messiah would reign over his people in righteousness and glory. There'd be flourishing. There'd be blessing. There'd be a reversal of the curse. And that's exactly where Paul takes us in Romans chapter 8. And he says this, he says, the anxious longing of the creation, we've read this before, the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility. That's the Greek translation of the same word that, that Solomon is using. Futility. Paul says it's futility. But it wasn't subjected willingly. It's being subjected here, meaning subjected by sin, subjected by God because of the curse. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
so that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For now the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together till now. And not only this, but we suffer as well. And we groan within ourselves waiting for this adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And we've been saved in hope We've been saved in hope. Yes, when we look at the world, we can say with Solomon, we can say with the apostle, it's futile. It's passing away. There's nothing here worth committing my soul for. And there's a reflection here even of Jesus' own words when he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Why? It's passing away. Your job will not bring you satisfaction. Ultimately, your spouse, your children, your, your home... None of these things, your hobbies, they have their place, certainly under God's program. But in the end, they don't supply meaning and purpose to your life. That can only come when we look past this world that's, that is passing away to the hope. Verse 24, in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen but, hope, but that hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees, but we hope for what we do not see, and with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And so then, how are we to live? What's the ultimate conclusion then of this? Nihilism? Depression? Sadness? No. From the Christian perspective, it is to say, let me enjoy the things God gives me, and let me work for those things while I have this time on this earth that is passing away for those things that will not pass away. And that's why we read 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because when this world passes away, it will receive its just reward. You will. You have a promise. You have a kingdom. And so the call here of Ecclesiastes in 1 is to say, Stop trying to find meaning in this world. Stop trying to gain pleasure just in this world. It won't happen. You have to look to something further than that, ultimately. In the meantime, serve the Lord, abound in his work, enjoy the good things that God gives us. Take delight in children, family, friends, jobs, and the pleasures of this world that aren't sinful pleasures. Take pleasure, enjoy them. But remember that the only things that last and truly bring significance to our life are those things we do for the kingdom of God and for the glory of Christ. So with that, we have our introduction into Ecclesiastes, and we'll take this into some illustrations in the life of Solomon next week. Let me pray as John and Heidi come up. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord... Ecclesiastes makes us face reality. You've given us this book by divine inspiration for that purpose. Not to leave us again in sadness. That would miss the purpose altogether. But at the same time, to live in reality and to realize you did not create this world to be the measure of our ultimate significance. This world was created to flourish under your glory for your purposes out of relationship lived in love for you and love for neighbor, our fellow image bearers. And you accomplished that purpose even in spite of the fall in an even more glorious way 
and providing for us a Savior who would atone for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came according to Scripture, who died according to Scripture, who rose according to Scripture, and who is bringing to us a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we look forward to that day. Help us in the meantime, again, Lord, to rejoice in the good things you give us, but to realize our greatest joy is delighting in the giver of all of these good things who has given us the greatest gift of forgiveness, redemption, eternal life, which will know its fullest fruit in that day that is coming. If there's any here who do not know you, then may these truths from your word be the truths, Holy Spirit, that you use to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.